You're listening to the ConsumerFi Podcast, powered by Norridge, loan software that accelerates change. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the ConsumerFi Podcast. I'm pleased to be joined today by Steve Craig of SoCure. Steve, welcome to the pod. Hey, thank you, Joel. It's great to be here. So Steve and I met a couple of years ago when we were in the first year of kicking off Fraud Friday for the National Automotive Finance Association. And Steve is somebody who is an expert and a leader in the field who is gracious enough to come and join us and really help crack open the topic and talk about a number of fraud schemes and other things that as lenders, and this is this was specific to non-prime automotive which is an interesting place where a lot of fraud can be perpetrated, to be honest. And so, Steve, we met back then and, and you kind of enlightened us. Do you want to tell us a little bit of your background? And then let, uh, we definitely want to dive into SoCure and what you're up to today. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to. Thanks uh, for having me on the podcast, Joel. This is this is amazing what you've built here. I've, I've been listening to, to the show for some time, so it's great to, to be a guest on it. So my name is Steve Craig and I'm with SoCure. I've been with Secure just a few months, but I've been in the identity verification industry for about six years. I've been in the financial services tech space for a long time. I was actually a loan officer many years ago. I don't know if I told you that, Joel. Uh, I used to process loans for banks and credit unions across the country. I didn't know yeah, that. Is yeah, that how you figured out how fraud works? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I worked in a call center while I was in college and we processed loans for smaller credit unions and banks. And I was the person that um, answered the phone. Hey, this is Steve. What type of loan would you like to apply for? And so I, I helped people through their consumer lending process. But yeah, that, that was my first exposure to fraud because we were in a call center. We weren't allowed to, to question the person on the other side of the phone. If they had the information, if they had the social, if they had you know all, all the details we needed, we took the app. Uh, we didn't. We didn't challenge them if uh, things didn't sound right. Uh, so that was my first foray. But uh, I, I've been in the industry for, for a while. Mostly worked in um, internet uh, companies. And when I joined the identity verification space, I was blown away by how much fraud activity was occurring. First, it was with with credit card applications, really, and uh, card not present. And then, as more and more moved online, once we saw EMV come in, when that became more of a standard, um, you started to see fraud that had been out in the physical world, move online, fraudsters got to eat too. And so that that concept of really making sure you're dealing with the consumer on the other side of the, the mobile phone or, or uh, on the website became really important. So I've been working with clients for years on that, building solutions, you know, roadmap development, uh, making sure that we've got the right tech in place. And uh, now I'm at Secure, which is just a rocket ship of a company right now um, that solves these problems in great detail. So I'm really excited to be with Secure. When we think back to the to the origin and the genesis of fraud, you talked about some of the card not present, obviously some of the income and employment things that are stated items, right? <laughs> and then yeah. it's really on the lender to do all the homework to try to figure out, does this actually match with an individual that may be receiving legitimate earnings, but it's, you know, maybe they're a landscaper. And so they get paid really in cash or, you know, other customer direct kind of payments. And it's very hard for us to audit because these people may not be heavily banked. But so, so when I think back to the, to the kind of origins and the genesis within auto, and you mentioned mortgage, which I think is probably very similar. What were the, what were the big, you mentioned card not present, but what were some of the other big things that we were seeing in fraud back, you know, say 10 years ago? 
Yeah. Well, if you look back in time, like t- 10 years ago, well, the standard for proving identity in many of these digital channels was this process of knowledge-based authentication. These are the questions that we all know and love about our financial history. What was your mortgage payment five years ago? Or what street did you live on? Or what was uh, this payment or that? And I think for, for a while that that worked because those details were were sensitive. I mean, they weren't, they weren't secret, but they, they yeah. were private to the individual. But we started to see more and more breaches, uh, credit data breaches, to the point where this information was, was out there and available for fraudsters to say, hey, I'm going to pretend to be Joel. I have all of his information. I'm going to go ahead and just answer these questions and get through the process. So this process of impersonation was was rampant. And many companies popped up to solve that problem. I think the biggest was LifeLock. I recall the, the founder and CEO put his social security number in ads. <laughs> he stopped doing that after a while, but um, very, very bold in the claims like, look, impersonation can be thwarted. Um, so we started to see uh, shifts of, of away from KBA as more data became available for, for the, the fraudsters to perpetrate that. And then as more mobile activity uh, increased, as, as the iPhones and the different smartphones proliferated, we saw more uh, mobile activity rather than um, in-branch applications. So it was, it was just more opportunity to commit uh, impersonation. But that started to shift. Um, impersonation, and you know, there's, there's certain, um, certainly a lot of that out there. That's the, the third-party fraud. But we're starting to see uh, more unique fraud types coming up. Yeah, I remember that was a hot topic back in the day about how the cell phone, right? You, the cell phone hit a, po- a, a point of importance where now I think you have to scratch your head if somebody said, would you rather use, lose your wallet or your cell phone? Which would you rather lose? Especially yeah. if you were like on travel somewhere, right? I don't know. I, I tend to take photos of important documents if I'm on travel just as a backup and having it on your phone is really helpful. But you kind of walked us through the story, Steve, and, and I want to tie this in with what SoCure is doing you know, nowadays, but um, what are some of the elements of fraud that you're seeing now in particular? I mean, you think about what happened with COVID with a large preponderance of companies having to figure out how to work in a distributed fashion. Obviously, you're not having customers come into the branches so you can look them in the eye. At least my understanding of it is the fraudsters are smart. If you close one door, they'll look, go and open another one. And maybe yeah. you can tell us a little bit about what you guys have been seeing along those lines. Yeah. And I can give you a little bit more about what I've been seeing the last few years. Yeah. So as, as KBA has been challenging uh, as, a, as an identity proofing um, process, the industry has looked to alternatives. And if you think about the classical, like how do you have strong customer authentication? It's typically what you know, what you have, and who you are. And then what you know is, okay, if you have a established a relationship, you have passwords. Well, we continue to use passwords as our primary point of uh, future authentication. But if you don't have that pre-established relationship, that's where KBA came in. That's where you, you, you uh, have knowledge-based questions. So you can prove, okay, Joel knows this information. But because that is no longer a great method, they've looked to other ways. So if you look at what you have and who you are, this is where the beginning of identity document-based verification started. This is, hey, you've got a government-issued credential in your wallet. You can bring that to your mobile camera. You take a picture of it. And then if you want to match that up to who you are, you take a selfie, you do a biometric scan of that, you, you ensure that it's a live present person and you do that comparison. But uh, fraudsters have gotten hip to that. And the ability to manufacture government issued documents without it being from the government, like the specifications that you'd get from the DMV, like mm-hmm. You're able to do that in this ecosystem uh, currently by going on nefarious websites and putting in details and you're getting equipment bought in these countries that 
maybe turn the other eye uh, when it comes to who has access to them. And they're printing identity documents that look exactly like the identity documents you or I would get officially. And then they're even as bold as to put their face on the document. You know, yeah. they're, they're in another country. They don't care. They're maybe doing a VPNN to get access. And, and they, they pass through those additional gates that, that have been put on. So that's become more and more challenging. Now you don't, you have the, what you have and who you are. If you can get past that, like what, what is left? And that's what really drew me to Secure is you need to take a, a holistic, a multidimensional view of someone's identity. So as an example, just because I have an ID and I have my face and it matches the document, what are the other digital trails? What's your digital DNA that yeah. exists out in the ecosystem to be able to, to link those pieces back? And so that's that's really the, the direction that the industry is going is multiple data points, not just the, the one, not just the identity document and the face. When I hear that, I think about the power of, of like a blockchain address where it can be very unique, very difficult to break it down. And it does, it can be your kind of personal fingerprint, if you will. I mean, do, do, are you aware of anybody doing anything with, with blockchain type technology to increase our ability to credential people or yeah. just kind of thinking, you know, on, on Mars, I, I belong with Elon Musk and his little <laughs> no. No, there's actually like really since the beginning of of the crypto craze and Bitcoin and all of these uh, these uh, blockchain use cases, there has uh, been a dialogue around the use of of a blockchain and identity because yeah. you can essentially track back those transactions. You you can establish trust. You can decentralize it. There are uh, many companies in the space that are leveraging that technology. But I mean, there's some some weaknesses to it in the context of identity. Some are related to privacy. Some are related to uh, transactional speed. Uh, there's certainly a, a cost element to it. Most of the ecosystem currently is rather centralized by the let's say the let's say your bank and you're trying to verify right. identities. You're still looking to to keep that information within your ecosystem. Yeah. You may not want another competing bank to have the same exact identity information that is, is portable. And so right. there's an element of competitiveness, but at the same time, the banks have realized, at least when it comes to, to sharing outcomes, that uh, there's power uh, in the consortium. But as far as blockchain, I think we'll, we'll see some emergence there, but that's it's not an area that uh, I've really focused on myself in recent years. So to bring it, to, this is a great segue. So to bring it to a point of, you know, some of the things that you're you're working on now, we we talked before recording a little bit about credit washing. What are the types of problems specifically that that Socure is is solving, and how you how you go about doing it, and and how people use your yeah. Let me go a little bit deeper into Socure uh, for those that are listening. Socure is a venture back company. It's been around almost ten years. Uh, uh, recently raised about a hundred million on a on a series Series D, one point three billion dollar valuation. So well-established company and secures uh, differentiation in the market is to take a holistic view of identity, to not just depend on a singular signal. So mm. when it comes to auto finance or credit card issuance, or even getting a DDA account or checking account, there's a series of steps you need to go through in the identity lifecycle to make sure that you're working with the person that you think you are. And, and many lenders have for a long time thought about credit risk. Like credit risk is sure. central to, to lending risk. And that includes, you know, can, can this person pay the loan? Um, do they have the character and your capacity? The, you know, the, the five C's, I forgot them all, but there, there's important elements there. Often identity is thought of as a stipulation or a condition. 
okay, subject to, to getting this loan, you have to prove who you are. But what we're saying is um, identity risk and credit risk are two different things. And if you address identity risk, identity risk sooner in the process, it's going to improve your credit quality long-term, but it's also going to save you from fraud losses. It's going to save you yeah. from trying to go down a very expensive process only to find you get to the end and, and you can't prove out the person or you have to, to take a questionable uh, leap of faith. And so what we're doing at Secure is we're ensuring that along the journey, all through a single platform, lenders, especially those doing auto lending, can use the right level of verification when it's most appropriate. So as an example, process of KYC, know your customer. Let's make sure that this person exists. Right. The status quo for that a lot of times is soft inquiry, or maybe it's the KBA or some other means where you're just establishing that this person exists using the credit file. But you're actually cutting off a lot of people who are either new to credit or are just getting established, might be new to country. So right. when you think about, does this person exist? You need to take a multidimensional view there. So is the name, address, date of birth, email, phone number, do these things exist out in the ecosystem? And can you prove that, yes, this person exists? So that's the first layer. Once you get past that hurdle, you move on to the next check, which is, is this person really who they claim to be? Because you don't want to get into a situation where you have third-party fraud. This goes right. back to the class, what people think of as identity theft. I've taken your information, Joel, because I either Googled enough about you or I stole your mail or something. That impersonation fraud still happens. So we have models that predict uh, third-party fraud. We have a, a model that, that uh, can tell you if we believe that this is an impersonation. We also have a model that will predict synthetic fraud. And synthetic fraud is a really fast-growing area of, of uh, fraud losses, which is hard to catch because these synthetic profiles look like either thin file applicants or they look great. They, they have established credit profiles. And, and they've, yeah. been, they've been cultivated out of nothing. So it's not like yeah. you have a victim on the other end of the transaction that you're using this identity. It's, yeah. it, they've created this out of nothing. So you are not going to get a complaint from somebody saying somebody's going out opening up credit cards in my name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that, that's what the current system depends on, like the ecosystem depends on there being a victim, right? Yeah. There being someone who's ra raised their hand and saying, hey, I didn't, I didn't set up this loan, but because the synthetic identity doesn't exist and the person who is actuating that identity, like their intent is to create more accounts and then eventually create a credit loss. Yeah, it makes it very hard to, to detect. And because these uh, synthetic identities often interact with other synthetic identities, either through money mule activities or through sharing trade lines, you, you start to breed them and seed them to the point where you could have a vast number of these already in the ecosystem. And, and that's part of what Secure is solving for uniquely in the market is having a model tuned to synthetic attacks, looking at situations where when we take a holistic view of the identity and we're linking and we're layering different signals, we've created predictors to say, hey, this, 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 looks, this fits a profile right. of a synthetic attack that we've seen at another customer, which is an important part of something I haven't mentioned about those two models for our, our third-party synthetic or third-party and synthetic models are built on the feedback of, of some of the largest clients in the space. They share that with us and then we build our models. So it's, it's this consortium effect where if one client has experienced a certain level of fraud and a different client is, is in the secure ecosystem, 
we're thwarting that fraud for them. I always love taking, you know, all the the masses of data because it's mutually beneficial and it's helpful mm-hmm. to all the companies that participate. I mean, it, we're already doing it for the basis of credit anyway, right? I mean, that's kind of you're not required to. Look, there's companies that I'm sure did not report and didn't have the best controls in place. You might have applied for a loan and you didn't perform. And then you came in again to us. And since the trade line was not reported, the underwriter just passes you through. Mm-hmm. Not knowing, not even realizing that you had already had a loan with us that you you defaulted on. That's why we report to the credit bureau. So we have the good data. Everybody can use it, even using it yourself in my in my example. Yeah. The same thing goes a long way with, with fraud data and information as well. Yeah. And it's key to what we're solving for, which is identity risk, because if an identity has broken through at one financial institution, if it works, chances are that fraudster is going to apply it to another because many of these banks and lenders are using similar systems. So once they find that attack vector, they exploit it and they exploit it at scale. And the interesting thing, and not a lot of people think about this is these are not what I might call a mom and pop fraudster, you know, a person in their basement, just trying to, to do small ripoffs and maybe buy stuff at Best Buy, et cetera. Like these are coordinated fraud rings. These are criminal networks that may be in other countries that are recruiting people from top universities to perpetrate these schemes. So it's not a fair fight, right? Uh, the, the fraudsters don't work with regulations. They don't go, oh, well, we can't do this because yeah. of Patriot Act, or we can't do this because of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. They have no rules. The banks, the lenders, really anyone who's proving identity, they have to follow rules. I mean, there's con- consequences to doing things like not providing adverse action reasons or potentially having scenarios of discrimination. So you have to be very thoughtful and thorough in what you do. Fraudsters don't, don't care about any of that. So right. it, it makes it really challenging. So th- those are the, the, the two beginning elements. And then another thing I'd add that I think is of growing importance in lending, which has mostly been around, say, DDA accounts, savings accounts, is this process of, of watch list screening being able to make sure that the person you're establishing business is not on some um, terrorist list, or uh, maybe they're a politically exposed person, or maybe there's been uh, adverse media, like people's names get brought through mass publications, sometimes with great personal details, those individuals become targets for identity impersonation, because now they're out there, right? And so being able to to track that, I, I doubt most most lenders are paying attention to the, the press as they're underwriting. Oh, is this this name that's you know, some uh, major news story that broke? And so that's an important part of the process as well as ensuring that you're screening for those scenarios of exposure. That's interesting, but it's also kind of scary because it's it, it reminds me of like the social score that they have over in China. I don't know if you ever yeah. track that, but they have that instead of at least how I understand it. I don't know how true it is. It might just be a bunch of fake news, but they said, you know, they have these social scores and that's basically your your credit report over there. But the government is really the one that's controlling the, yeah. the algorithm. Well, I, I've heard about that. I'm a fan of the the Netflix series Black Mirror. I think that they, they have this uh, dystopian views of the world, and there's a episode about that where every interaction is is scored yeah. um, between individuals, and then your social score limits you and what you can do. And I, what I think was really interesting, fascinating about that is our our credit ecosystem is is not uh, too different than that. It's driven more by financials. But yeah. it can be very punitive, right? If let's say I'll give tell you a story. When I turned 18, the first thing I wanted to do is establish credit. 
Yeah. I applied for a target card, then filed denied. At least that created an inquiry. I, I existed, I think, at that point. I applied for um, a credit card with another big company, $250, $250 limit. I was, I was thrilled. Like I had a credit card. I was starting. <laughs> then I think a month or two later, I applied uh, with a, a, a top bank. Uh, it, they gave me a $5,000 credit card. And I'm 18. And it's like from denied to cap, must, you know, well, a, a card been, on his name. That must have been MBNA. Back it, in the day, MBNA, no. all those Delaware guys, I mean, they were, they were, I, I could have gotten a $100,000 credit card at that age. I, I, yeah. After I established, I got a couple credit cards. I got one from MBNA. I think it was a National Wrestling Association branded card. I think there was, <laughs> who the wrestler was on there, money yeah. or something, who knows, but it was easy, right? You, any event you go to, there was somebody there with a table and they wanted to sell you a credit. They wanted to get you signed up for a yeah, credit card. Cool. It's easy. At, at that time too, all, there was a lot of recruiting in universities. So I remember days so in college where rows of tables sign up for a credit card. Yeah. But, but where I'm going with the story is like, so 5,000, what did I, what did I do at 18? I used it here and there. Suddenly uh, it, it's full. Yeah. How, how, how did I spend $5,000 in a matter of six months when uh, you know, I'm barely making uh, over minimum wage at the yeah. time. And so I, I was immediately drowned, right? Um, and then uh, with minimum payments, what I decided to do, and this is not what a lot of people do, is I made sure I kept up with minimums. And I had to choose between sometimes eating food and paying a credit card payment. Yeah. And for me, that that paid off. I, I continued to improve my, my credit and credit. It's been an important part of my, my financial livelihood, right? Getting lower interest rates just gets you, you know, lower payments on cars and mortgages, et cetera. Right. But there are individuals that don't do that. And so when, when they're young, they make credit mistakes. They don't know. They don't know any better. There's not a lot of financial literacy going on in the world, especially not in high school. And so they're stuck with that. Then when they're 22, 23, like they're dealing with mistakes from when they're still really a kid. And so what do they do? They turn to these Sometimes they're they're legit. They help you get rid of your debt and give you debt relief. But in many cases, they're nefarious, right? There's, yeah. hey, we're gonna we're gonna help you improve your credit. We're gonna help you get these bad things off your 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 uh, profile. Right. And people jump for it because there's no other no other mechanism other than maybe bankruptcy and exiting the credit ecosystem for a while. So this is where the credit washing schemes that that we were talking about um, came up. Um, this is where these companies are promising miracles, but what they're really doing is exploiting loopholes in the financial system where they're you know, reporting good debts uh, gone bad as, as identity theft. Right. I, 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 I'm, I'm not going to claim this as real debt, right? Mm-hmm. They may have opened it. They say, this is not my debt. Yeah. And, and they're, just, they're just signing their name away to that and people are charging them fees to, to do that. Sometimes they will try to find individuals that will will sell authorized user accounts. Hey, let me let me get on your your uh, Home Depot card, Joel. That way, I can help build my credit back up. If that's between family members, maybe that's okay. But when it becomes between perfect strangers, you, you don't know who you're uh, letting piggyback onto your yeah. credit. And, and maybe these the are term, right. Isn't that the term piggybacking? Isn't that piggybacking the- is, is used there? I've been uh, sharing trade lines. There's companies that supply trade lines that you can go and there are like peer to peer networks. Where they'll they'll set you up for those that, that think they're doing something altruistic by selling their their authorized user account or joining on a trade line. Chances are these fraudsters are exploiting that as well. So this is where these synthetic identities can get seeded. 
because yeah. they're they're piggybacking on a trade line and and they're creating an identity out of nowhere and they will they will pay it they will be good right they, they'll be good users and then once that relationship's done you've now created this phantom they can go and get the hundred thousand dollar credit line or yeah. get an automotive vehicle through and this gets into you know more automotive use cases but the digital transformation that's happening with car buying is is amazing for for you know industry that's been fairly uh, static but that's more exploitation opportunity because if you're never going into a dealership uh, to make a car purchase and you're doing these things all remote like oh, this is a fraudster's dream you don't yeah. have to you know, prove yourself uh, physically you, you do it through these digital mechanisms you're right to call out the process change right a lot more online touchless delivery you, you mentioned people are getting recruited out of college to join clearly criminal situations. When I'm talking to these people that are clearly in, a, in an offshore call center and they know they're not the IRS and they know they're not US Customs and they're just yeah. doing this anyway. I feel like there's this degradation in terms, people just don't care, or maybe it's because of the great distrust of governments, et cetera. I almost get a sense that people feel justified that they're normalizing this behavior and they think that this is in fact a job. Yeah, and, and and my point there is is if that's the case and people feel normalized, then they're going to start waving a flag and they're going to feel that this is righteous, and it's just going to increase even more and more. And especially when you have foreign governments that are not exactly most cooperative with us in helping us, you know, really nail down where this stuff is coming from. At least as far as I'm concerned, I think if you want to be effective within a truly online process. You're really going to want to watch your back and keep an eye on things because to me, it just seems like things are increasing. And, and I hate to, I, I don't mean to create a fear factor on it. I'm just saying this has been my observation. It seems like these things are really creeping up. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and I've, I've been receiving calls like that for, for years. And the, the top telco providers, the big cell phone companies, they've tried to put in spam blockers for a while. I was getting a lot yeah. of the, spam likely uh, warnings and I, okay, good. Not, not going to answer that. I've been getting a call every day for the last three months about a roofing company. Hey, you qualify for a roofing program. It's like, I call it back. I try to, you know, I'm in the do not call list. It's a right. different number every single time. And, and I can't, I, I can't block it. So I, th I think what we're seeing is this democratization of technology where these companies that they're fraud companies, but they set up shop as if they're a you know, technical support Some firm or, or, or multi-level marketing firm or, 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 or something they establish in countries like India, the Philippines, yeah. and they are creating employment for individuals there that maybe really don't care for them. And like, well, this just seems weird to be doing, but uh, it's legitimate. They have an office. Like, they don't feel like like maybe, they do some, maybe they do some legit work in there, right? Maybe it's a combination of some legit mm -hmm. contracts and some bogus contracts. Yeah. Yeah. But they, they're getting more and more sophisticated with phishing attacks. So phishing generally is when, and it's uh, phishing with a, with a pH, they're phishing for a victim. The most common way they start is, is by sending emails to try yeah. to get you to reply Sometimes they'll make the emails look like they come from a reputable company. It looks like a PayPal or, or maybe an Amazon. They want to hook you and get you to do some activity that will eventually benefit them in some way. Either they're going to trick you into to muling money or they're going to trick you in, into giving them VPN access or remote access to your, your, right. your PC and they're going to hijack you and say, oh, I can fix this right. virus if you pay me $200. So these phishing attacks have been occurring for years. 
and and they prey on, on the, the the individuals that are less tech savvy that are not hip to these schemes. And unfortunately, this becomes younger individuals and older individuals that just don't have the training on it. As identity information is out on the on the web, we're seeing spear phishing attacks. Spear phishing is when they're looking at you, Joel, and they're understanding everything about you. They're ana- analyzing where you live. They're going into social media to see who you're connected with. They're mapping you on maybe it's a whiteboard or a piece of paper or something, but they know everything about you. And so they will uh, attempt to trick you into maybe uh, it's through a fake Facebook profile that looks like your cousin. And he's, hey, I'm stuck in Tijuana, Joel. Can you send me 50 bucks? I need to, to get, get across the border. Like, oh, sure. you know. So people do that. And so they're getting more and more aggressive. They're getting more and more sophisticated. So not just worrying about how we prove identity between like a financial institution and, and a consumer, but how do we prove identity between each other without right. saying, hey, just call me. Let me verify this is you. Um, that's really, unless you, 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 uh, you know, have that conversation, you might get tricked into it and, and they make money. Like the, this is, yeah. this is a big industry. Otherwise they wouldn't set up these operations to, to perpetrate it. Or you could just get really, really embarrassed. Like that man, Titeo guy from the chargers that got, uh, I guess he had a girl that he fell in love with, but on the other end of the, of the, of the computer, it was, it was not a, a girl. It was like a phony. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that, what do they call that? I think that's the, the cat catfishing. catfishing. Or, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, for, I mean, it's for romantic purposes, but I mean, that happens too. I mean, the whole ecosystem of, of online dating these days is filled with either fake profiles, um, people playing tricks on each other. And it's like the, the, the integrity of identity is, is uh, never more, more important than it is today. I think we need an Amish president that will just run on a mandate of idle hands or the devil's workshop, because I think we all just need more to do, more constructive stuff to do. Yeah. These fraudsters, these organized cr- criminal networks, like what they're doing with the money is in many cases, they're funnel, funding, funneling it into activities like, hey, dr- the drug trade right. or hu- human trafficking or, or terrorism. So yeah. to them, like this is yeah, what they want to do, right? They have whatever reasons. And then of course, there, there are people trying to rip you off that maybe live down the street, you know, that, that are, are just trying to, to get some free money. And that's certainly yeah. happening. It's definitely a, a problem. And, and with this last year in the pandemic, we've seen all the press with um, unemployment, billions of dollars lost to overseas activities of, of people impersonating individuals. I'm on LinkedIn. Hey, I've, I've just you know, lost my job. I People see those messages. Uh, great, I'm going to file for unemployment for for Joel before he has a chance to. And then you know the the unemployment agencies like they don't have good systems for that as well. So there's it's unreal. They give you like a little uh, bank card. So I mean, you know, as long as I have that card and I have the pen, it's not going to. You got the money. Yeah, I got the money. Yeah. Uh, imagine uh, getting a tax bill for benefits you never received. Maybe you were still employed the whole time and and you were never in that category. So I mean, it's, uh, well, I guess you could, you could say, look, prove to that. I actually got the money. I, I never, well, I guess you could take it out as cash and it could be like, well, you took it all out as cash. I don't know, but that's sticky. Yeah. Steve, you're going to be, and thank you for the support of the, of the trade group. You'll be at the national automotive finance association annual conference. It's our 25th anniversary silver celebration. And that's going to be at the end of August through early September in Plano, Texas. Steve, you're going to be joining us on some of our fraud tracks. And we're going to be talking more about 
stuff like credit washing, et cetera, some of the things that, that you're very knowledgeable in. Definitely looking forward to having you there. And for folks that want to kind of connect with you, I'm assuming this is this is definitely going to be released before the conference. If, if For folks that want to learn more, Steve, or maybe just pick your brain, that's one of the things, folks, that I need to make sure you understand. I've noticed, particularly within the fraud space, and then guys like Steve, you know, I think it comes down to the individual, very open to having conversations, not constantly looking at the clock. Like these are guys that like to build solutions. And me in sales as well with Northridge, I've got a couple clients prospects, one one that signed, but but the other's a, a prospect, a couple more, where they're really letting me engineer an entire solution that involves the full scale through from from the application through the credit evaluation all the way through servicing and we have some really cool stuff at Northridge and some cool extensions etc but what it gives me is a satisfaction of being able to consult and put a little footprint there and i think steve is very much the same and you owe it to yourself to reach out to steve so steve if folks need to get a hold of you or or want to kind of pick your brain on some of this stuff we we covered a lot of ground but but what's the best way for folks to kind of reach out to you yeah, absolutely. I think the easiest is through LinkedIn. So okay. just go go into the search box there and, and type Steve Craig uh, Secure. I mean, those three three words should bring up my profile. I could uh, share my 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 email address too if if you put it in yeah. the, the content there. Um, but let's connect at the show. Uh, I'm really excited about that. And I, I re- recall going to one a few years ago with you, Joel. Yeah. And it was an amazing group of of individuals that are all trying to to solve similar pro- problems. And it's it's funny to see competitors there. Right? These are yeah. these are companies are competing for customers and loans. Even car manufacturers uh, and their captive lending arms are there. We all want the same. We yeah. want to make sure good customers get access to great financial products and get vehicles and go on with their life. And we want to stop fraud. So there's a higher level purpose here yeah. beyond just you know doing business and making transactions happen. It's to stop the bad guys because yeah. where this money goes is is unacceptable. So yeah, LinkedIn. Email. I think those are the best best ways. If you want more information about the company I work at now, just go to secure.com and check it out. And I'm happy to to, to tell you more. Yeah, that's great. And, and Steve, thanks for mentioning that. You know, that that was the spirit and the magic behind Fraud Friday had just a great deal to do with the great people such as yourself, really open-minded, totally fine having conversations about clients or with clients, with competitors there. You know, obviously we all adhere to antitrust type stuff. So we're not going to do anything, you know, outside the box, but look, fraud hurts everybody. And, you know, it's kind of a, you know, rising tides, raise all the boats type thing. I think we know that. And that's really the basis of, you know, why we're talking today, why you're going to be at the NAF. You know, we're really looking to make sure that we're getting the education out. People understand what's going on. The fact is the percentage of business that was done completely online today versus the same time, even last year in the middle of the pandemic, I think we have so many more operators that are mobilized and need to think about putting this in line, right? Some kind of fraud detection, some kind of fraud evaluation, putting it in line with that process, particularly if they've really stepped away from the old touch and feel paper cut style of underwriting, where you really are pouring over everything and you've got about four different ways to audit every single piece of information. Yeah. I really want to automate this stuff. There are ways to do it where you can grab even greater value, right? When you think about grabbing consortium related statistics versus just my own, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to I'm going to impose bias, right, through how I market. If I market only in Latino markets and in Spanish, 
I'm going to get that clientele, right? So, you know, if I, if I just, if I never say anything in Spanish and I have no Spanish people on my floor, I'm probably not going to be, you know, really utilized by the folks that deal with the Spanish speaking clientele. So point is, is, um, is I love, I love, I love Steve. I, I love having you on. I love, uh, I love, I can't wait until we get to the NAF conference and yeah, let me, let me, let me let you get the last word. I mean, for, for the conference, like yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about credit washing, et cetera. Anything, anything you kind of want to throw in as a closing thought or comment, you know, yeah. related or conference. Well, well, most definitely. And I touched on this, this earlier is to, to really think about credit risk and identity risk as two different problems to solve, right? The identity risk typically in lending is looked at last, right? These are the stipulations. These are the conditions. Let's just prove who this person is, but look up, look, look at that upfront and do that either in parallel with a credit process or, or ahead of the credit process. So you make sure this person really exists, make sure it's the person they claim to be, make sure you can do business with this person. And if you need to take it to the, the extreme of having them take a picture of their identity document and a selfie, yeah. do that in a way where the, the friction of the transaction Yes. matches with with the consumer expectation and this is this is new to to automotive and i've i've, I've talked with a lot a lot of people in the space it's like well we don't really have a fraud problem with that people are misrepresenting information it's more first party no chances are you, you have synthetics on your books yeah. chances are someone has impersonated got the car took the car over the border or sold it before you could figure it all out so just that would be my my final point is like think about those differently let's have the dialogue in texas at the conference and let's figure out how to solve it. Outstanding. Thanks, Steve Craig of SoCure. Thank you so much Thank for being on the pod today. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a great day. The Consumer Fi Podcast has been brought to you by Nortridge, loan software that accelerates change. We'd also like to thank the National Automotive Finance Association, the only trade association exclusively serving the non-prime auto financing industry.